Oh God, the bells ring. The Advent season is announced. We remember we are Adventists, yet clinging to the hope that there shall be one more Advent from Emmanuel. One more coming from Messiah. And so, between the two comings, here we are. The bells ring. We want to be joyful, but how many hearts today across this land are weighed down with hurt and with tears. These moments that are left this morning, dear Father, bring, bring a word that shall be hope for us as we wait upon you now through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In this post-September 11 world in which we now find ourselves, the CEO of Burger King International perhaps has something we must hear. He's right, isn't he? I hold in my hands here. This is the November 14 issue of USA Today. It was just a couple weeks ago. This is section B on money. Some of you go to this section first. I usually throw it away. But the cover story caught my eye. It has nothing to do with September 11, and yet it occurs to me this morning that perhaps it has everything to do with this post-September 11 world we now find ourselves in. This cover story about, uh, as I mentioned, the CEO of Burger King. His name is John Dasberg. Put his picture on the screen for you. John Dasberg. It's a two-page story. I'm going to read just the first three sentences, all right? Dateline, Miami, where he lives. On a drizzly December day, John Dasberg's six-year-old daughter, Meredith, was riding home from first grade when her school van was involved in a collision. She was the only fatality. That was 13 years ago. It has been two months and three days since the September 11 attacks, but Dasberg, now CEO of Burger King, says he knows what thousands of grief-stricken mourners are asking. When will the pain go away? His answer, never. How do you like that for a quick to the point Q&A on human suffering question? When will it end? Answer, never. Never. Which means that the familiar first three words that begin a book that has been on the New York Times bestseller list longer than any other book in history. You may be acquainted with these opening three words. It's beginning salvo. I'm referring to M. Scott Peck's celebrated book, The Road Less Traveled. Those three words are right, aren't they? Life is Difficult. Oh, my. I tell you what, the writer George Herbert, I think, much more profoundly makes the very same point. Look at this. I cried when I was born, and every day shows why. You can't get more profound and poignant than that, now can you? And the French writer Simone Weil, she wanted to put it in this way. There are only two things that pierce the human heart. One is beauty, the other 
is affliction. Ladies and gentlemen, it seems that the other, this thing called affliction, the other is what we have been living with too much around these parts these days. I have a personal prayer list, but for some reason it is stuck this week on the letter J. I see him here. His name is James. Came back just a few hours ago from Mayo. Having been informed that he now faces the fight of his life. Think of another J. His name is Jerry. 124, Thursday morning, my phone rings. It's the emergency room. Come down. Jerry's having a difficult struggle breathing. Another J. John, one of my leaders right here in this parish. His own battle pressed. Three men who with their wives and children suffer. Suffering. The universal story before and after September 11. Hey, let, let, shall we talk about the heartache that young adults on this campus experience? Fact of the matter is, you don't have to be dying to suffer. The ache and pain of broken hearts are not bound by medical charts. I had a young man in my office two Sabbaths ago. Not even a student from this campus. He's visiting from Notre Dame University. He needed to speak to someone. And I was fortunate. That young man in my office, in tears, crushed and broken over a relationship that has disintegrated. <laughs> Emotionally, financially, physically, socially, spiritually. I tell you what, it is true. Life is difficult. But then again, we're compelled to ask the question, is there a phoenix that can yet rise up with a hope of triumph out of the ashes that it seems so much and so often now we are compelled to bear in our national, our personal, our very private suffering. We just concluded a series entitled The Thanksgiving Phoenix, Out of the Ashes, A Grateful Heart, Two Parts. Today we begin two parts as well, a series, The Christmas Phoenix, Out of the Ashes, A Hopeful Heart. Open your Bible, please, with me to Romans chapter 8. There is a solitary line from this windswept summit of Scripture that dares to rise like a phoenix from the ashes of our pain and suffering. And I'll tell you what, if I could just put it this way rather bluntly, we would be fools to ignore this promise. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Romans there in the New Testament. Those of you watching on television will put the words on the screen in just a moment. And since having Dr. Harry Mahondo here, there's a new little feature at Pioneer that you need to pick up on. And that is if you forgot to bring from your room in the dormitory your Bible or from your home in the community, there is a new King James Version sitting right in front of you in between those hymnals. And you can use that as well. Romans chapter 8. This morning I'm going to be in the New Living Translation. Romans chapter 8. Sometimes returning to a familiar verse. I suppose this verse, by the way, is, ranks as one of the most familiar for all Christians. John 3.16, of course, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That has to be number one. I suppose for the world, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's awfully familiar too. But this one will rank right up there near them. Romans chapter 8, single line, verse 28. Romans 8. 
verse 28. Let's read this verse together. I'll put it on the screen for those of you watching on television. Verse 28. And we know, Paul is writing here, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Isn't that wonderful? And we know. Oh, by the way, there are two we know statements in this chapter. There's a we know statement in verse 23. And he says, we know that all of creation suffers. All of creation groans. So there are two realities we know this morning. Number one, we know that we suffer. We know that creation itself groans. That suffering is universal. But number two, in the midst of our suffering, please, Paul says, we, I remind you, we also know that we have a caring God. We know two things. Two realities in this life. And this is the second reality, verse 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Now, hold it right there. Before, before we take another step, before we even take another breath, it is imperative that we do not misread what Paul has just written. That we do not read into this text what is not there. Please get it straight. The Bible does not say all things are good for those who love God. It does, you can't find that in your translation. Never, 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 never. Because all things are not good. That's why. Some people think that's what the verse says. It does not say that. Too much of what befalls us, you know, I know, is purely, positively evil. September 11's attacks were unmitigated evil. There was not an ounce of good in their perpetration. That did not come from God. All things are not good. Disease is not good. Death is not good. Destruction is not good. Divorce is not good. Depression is not good. Disasters are not good. Good. All things are not good. You said, Dwight, what are you making such a big point about this? I'll tell you why. The point must be made in order to protect the followers of Christ from embracing a naive, Pollyanna-ish, whistling-in-the-dark denial of the great controversy that rages around us and oftentimes within our very cells and our body itself. All things are not good. Because the enemy of heaven... Let's face it. And the enemy of earth, same enemy, by the way, still inflicts his diabolical evil upon the children of this race. We who are still the children of the benevolent creator of this universe, but at times, in spite of our fallen collusion with the enemy, at times, still, all things are not good. Now, it's true. And I suppose the point needs to be made right here. Some of us have caused our own suffering to be sure. You can't always, that old Flip Wilson line, the devil, the devil, you, you cannot always say the devil made me do it. Ian Fleming, the celebrated author of the James Bond novels. Ian Fleming, you remember that name. When he was a young man, he was the strongest athlete that the English private school Eton ever knew. Fleming's ancestors were multi-millionaires and the boy was incredibly gifted, but he smoked 70 cigarettes a day, lived on steaks and Russian vodka, and morally was as loose, as one author put it, as loose as a flapping Venetian blind. 
That's pretty loose. Fleming began to die in his 40s. In his early 50s, he suffered a heart attack. And by the age of 56, he was dead just when his James Bond books were beginning to make their millions. We reap what we sow. You can't, you can't paper that over. You can't you kind, of, kind of pansy it out of the picture. It's true. We would be less than honest if we didn't admit that some of our suffering we have brought upon ourselves. No, but irrespective of that, all of life is not good. Some of it is evil, whether it comes from our enemy without or the enemy within. But then that is precisely Paul's point. You see, God is able to take, no matter where the evil comes from, within or without, God can yet bring good out of that evil. That's Paul's point. Look at it again. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. John R.W. Stott, in his wonderful one-volume commentary on, on the book of Romans, sees in this single line three hope-building, three hope-inspiring realities about God that we, need, we can embrace right now. We can, come to, we can come to believe right now. Three hope-inspiring realities, and I want to share them with you. Hope-inspiring reality number one, God works. Which is why the old King James is actually a mistranslation of the original language right here. All things do not automatically work themselves together into a pattern for good. No, 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 no. All things can't work good. Because as we have noted, some things are just plain evil. It is God alone who is able to work in the midst of our all things, both evil and good. Hope inspiring truth number one. God is the one who works. And because our God is omnipotent, that means He can have the last word with anything that happens in this life. The final last word. He gets it. He is all-powerful. No matter what you're going through right now, your right now is not the last word. God is going to have it. God is going to have it in your life. He has not yet had the last word. He is working. He is working in the midst of your suffering. He didn't cause your suffering. Let's get this straight. He did not cause your suffering, but He is working in the midst of that suffering. God works. Not all things. God works. Hope-inspiring truth number one. Hope-inspiring truth number two. God works. God works for our Good. I mean, like, like we often say, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. We go back and forth. It's, it's, it's autonomic with us as Christians. Well, the, very fa the, the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, the, the testimony we make is absolutely true. Everything God does, everything God is, is good. He never comes to you with evil. He only has good. And that's why John R.W. Stott writes these words. Being himself wholly good, God's works are all expressions of his goodness and are calculated to advance his people's good. 
no matter, I repeat it, no matter what you are going through right now, the God is good. God is at work in you to yet turn it around. Don't you hold it. He, he's not through. He is not through. Robert Schuller. Oh, I like how Robert Schuller has put it for so many years. Uh, God turns our scars into stars. Only Schuller could do something like that. God turns our stars, our scars rather, into stars. God is at work. And God works for our good. Oh. Three hope-inspiring truths. Let's put them up there. Number one, God works. Number two, God works for our good. And number three, don't forget this, please. God works for our good in all things. Some of you are writing this down. In all things. God works for our good. I like the, uh, the New Living Translation here. And we know that God causes everything to work together for our good. Everything. All things. No matter what you're going through right now, you can triumph in it or you can triumph out of it. All things, all things. I suppose the classic example of this hope-inspiring truth is the Ripley's. Have you ever followed Ripley's Believe It or Not? The Ripley's Believe It or Not life story of a young man named Joseph. Pampered by his dad, hated by his stepbrothers, a dreamer who dreamed one day of leading his entire tribe, but who was sold by his jealous, hateful brothers to a caravan of Midian slave traders, dragged in chains. Ah, oh, boy, as a boy, I grew up with that picture. I've got to pause right here. That's a Harry Anderson picture. I grew up with that picture. My heart would ache every time I saw that picture because I love my dad so much. And the thought of having to leave my dad, my mother, to, to be taken away. And I had to go away at an early age to, uh, to an academy in Singapore because I grew up in Japan. And, and I would always, I'd feel the pang, the, the heartache that Joseph is feeling. Dragged in chains to Egypt. He sold off the block to the captain of Pharaoh's guard. He becomes a slave in Potiphar's household. But like a phoenix out of the ashes, he rises to the head of all the slaves until finally one day Potiphar says, Boy, you are the leader of my entire estate. Whoa. Wow. Until his master's wife can't stand the thought of not sleeping with this virile young slave leader. And then out of utter loyalty to God, Joseph refuses her advances and she has him thrown in jail where for all intents and purposes, his life story should have ended. I mean, there's no way out when you got a life sentence. There's no way out. You're just there forever and ever. Amen. But never forget it. The God who is able to work for our good in all things never takes his eye off of the fiery furnace of affliction through which we are passing as silently, slowly, but supernaturally the sovereign purposes of the eternal God imperceptibly are moving toward their eventual fulfillment. You wouldn't think so with chains on your wrists and ankles. But God says, okay, I'm still working. You wouldn't think so with the suffering you're going through right now. I haven't stopped. I'm still working. I'm working. This is not good what's happening to you. But I'm working. 
The last chapter has not yet been written. I'm working. Stay with me. Stay with me. And Joseph stayed with him. Oh, until that unforgettable day. It just blows my socks off every time I think about this. That unforgettable day when mighty Pharaoh summons this captive dreamer from his prison cell into the regal splendor of that throne room. And get this, folks. After a single brief conversation, Pharaoh, what is wrong with him? Pharaoh makes the decision that he is going to take this slave prisoner from the dungeon and elevate him into the second most powerful political position in the entire empire. Hollywood could not have dreamed this Horatio Alger rags to riches kind of story. You, you just can't come up with it. You cannot. Truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, it would be like George Bush. We're, we're living close to a Michigan city. There's this huge is it Indiana State Penitentiary in Michigan City. We have a prison ministry team that goes there. So I'd be like George Bush saying, listen, I'm near Michigan City. Let me go in. He goes in. He goes down the corridor. He stops into one cell block. He said, I want to talk to this boy here. He said, boy, I like you. You now are going to become the vice president of the United States. I mean, every headline in the world would scream. Wow. But Pharaoh did. You know, we skip over that. We say, well, you know, I got me, 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 me. No, he took him from the bottom to the second highest position of political power in the whole empire. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not through with anybody here, me included. He's not through yet. I'm blown out of the water whenever I ponder Joseph's story who by the way years later forgave his brothers and he didn't know this but he was actually speaking Romans 8:28 it's kind of a reprise on Romans 8:28 although Romans 8:28 hadn't been written yet this is Genesis chapter 50 Joseph speaking to his stepbrothers don't be afraid of me as far as i am concerned god turned into good there it is, Romans 8:28. God turned into good what you meant for evil. He brought me to the high position I have today so that I could save the lives of many people. Oh my, hope inspiring truth number 3 from Romans 8:28. God works for our good in all things. It was true for Moses. It was true for the man who gave us the story of Moses in Genesis. Story of Joseph, rather. Story of Joseph. I'm thinking of Moses and saying the story of Joseph. Here's Moses. I mean, he wrote the Joseph story, you understand. Forty years of professional uh, preparation, gone. Forty years of wilderness wandering, all of it down the tubes. When it looked like his life was curtains and over, God said, I'm ready now, I'm ready now to write the next chapter. God works for our good in all things. Job, Job, the story of Job. That one man has done more to comfort the human race than perhaps any other man in literature. Job, Paul, who begged God to heal him. Three anointings, three major prayer services. And God said, nope, I have another chapter ending than you're thinking of. But it'll be better than the one you're wishing. Helen Keller, she is born deaf. She is born blind. Dumb. She becomes a mighty spokesperson for cultural change and society's elevation. 
God works all things, all things for our good. All things are not good. He works all things for our good. Three, hope-inspiring, hope-building truths from the summit of Scripture in Romans 8. God works for our good in all things. And again, please remember, all things are not good, but our good God can bring good from all things. Even from something as terrible and tragic as a murder. But I now wish to share with you. Three weeks ago, I was out in Los Angeles. We were taping some more footage for our national, Faith for Today's national telecast that I know you're praying for. The evidence seen now on Court TV Sunday afternoons at 2 o'clock. 55 million homes seen on Trinity Broadcasting Network. Seen on the satellite network that some of you are watching this sermon on. Seen 2 o'clock Sundays afternoons on the east and the west. 1 o'clock Central and Mountain. So I'm out last week. I meet a Christian and a Muslim. They're sitting at the desk with me at the evidence interview set. I want to share their story with you. Kind of set it up before we go to some video clips in just a moment. College student Tariq Kamisa, 20 years old, grew up in San Diego in a loving and stable home with strong religious values. He and his family, Muslims. Tariq was engaged to be married. Okay, university students can identify. Engaged to be married. And like university students have to do, he needs some spending money. And so on this evening of January 21, 1995, he is working as a pizza delivery man. San Diego, California. Also living in North Park, a suburb of San Diego, was Tony Hicks, a 14-year-old youth born out of wedlock, sent at the age of eight by his single mom to live with her father, Tony's grandfather. As a, as a boy, Tony had been abused by his dad. At a young age, he stumbled across the gangland murder of a cousin of his. So he's, he's lived a very troubled youth. But like a moth that is drawn to the flame on the evening of January 21, 1995, Tony sneaked away from his grandfather's home to join a gang of his own, and he left a note. Daddy, that's what he called his grandfather, Daddy, I've run away, love, Tony. Now the gang decided that night that they needed to make a quick, a fast buck. And so they phoned in a fake pizza order. Hid in the shadows when Tariq arrived with their order, surrounded him in his car, and when he refused to hand over his money, Tony was the trigger man and felled that 20-year-old college student. So far, sadly enough, this story is hardly unusual. However, had it not happened, this immense and tragic loss of a young man's life, the two men you are about to see on your screen, one a Muslim father and the other a Christian grandfather, would not be partners in the Tariq Kamisa Foundation, a national foundation dedicated to wipe out the violence of children killing children. And so I asked Azim Kamisa, the father of slain Tariq, and Plaz Felix, the grandfather of the young murderer Tony, I asked each of them, how did you feel that night when the news came and you found out? Let's watch the screen. Azim, I know you shared it a moment ago, but I want to come back to that. When the telephone rang with news of 
Tarek's death. How did you feel? Well, as I described it, it felt like a nuclear bomb had detonated inside of my body and broken me into millions of pieces that could never ever be found or put back together. More importantly, I had lost all my will to live. As you saw that news bulletin, a thought flashed through your mind, maybe Tony, he's not here. How did you feel when it was confirmed that in fact that was your grandson? It was a realization of a foreboding that I had felt. It just came real. Um, I recognized that all the dreams uh, that I had for Tony would not be realized. Um, I recognized that he would be lost to me, to the criminal justice system. And it was extremely painful um, because I had to call my daughter and tell her that her only son was uh, charged with murder. It was very painful. Um, but uh, you know, I still love Tony. I still care for him. Um, and I've gotten over my anger, and certainly I've, I've forgiven him for his act. Because if, if Azim can forgive him, uh, certainly... I have to be able to do that. You've got a, a Muslim father who lost his boy at the hands of the grandson of the man he's sitting beside right now, a Christian grandfather. I asked those men what it was like the, the moment, the time they first met each other. Okay? The, the, the legal system is moving through towards the sentencing. Tony became the first boy sentenced under a new California law that juveniles could be sentenced with adult penalties. And Tony received an adult penalty. I asked him how they felt when they met. The last we hear, just a moment ago, we're coming up to Tony's sentencing. But before Tony is sentenced, you meet. How did that meeting uh, turn out, Azim? Well, I asked for the meeting. Uh, I had made a decision to start a foundation in memory of my son, Tari Kamisa Foundation. And I asked the district, deputy district attorney to set up a meeting. And I was under the impression that I was going to meet with the, with the public defender that uh, defended Tony. Because mm. he wanted to know why I wanted to meet. Mm. Plus, when I arrived there with the deputy DA and another member of the foundation, Mike Reynolds, Plez was already there. You walk into the room and Plez is there. Plez is already there. What was that moment like? Well, it was uh, an electri elect electrifying moment because mm. I wasn't expecting to see him. And, um, and it took me by surprise. And I stopped, but then I continued. And uh, I was introduced to Claire's by Peter. And, uh, and I opened a conversation. And, and I told Claire's that I wanted him to know that I didn't feel any animosity towards him mm. or his family. That uh, I was concerned for him, for Tony, and also for all the other children in our country that were trying to cope with this violent world and that I had started a foundation in memory of my son, Tariq. Plaz, your reaction? Well, for me, this was the answer to my prayer hmm? um, because as soon as I knew that Tony was responsible for Tariq's death, I began to pray and ask for an opportunity to meet Tariq's family. Hmm. So meeting Azim and shaking his hand and, and expressing my condolences and sympathies 
and, and letting him know that I was keeping his family uh, in my daily prayers and meditations and that I wanted to make myself available in any way I could to assist him and his family with their loss. In fact, you met the whole family. What was it, a, a week or two well, later? Yeah. Or? Uh, I invited Pless to my house. We had a, our second meeting for the foundation about a week after I'd met him. And at the second meeting, my entire family was there. My father was there. Tariq's mother was there. My daughter was there. My sister was there. And my mom was there. And, um, and we had 50 other guests. And Ples came. And I think it took a lot of courage on his part to come to my house and meet all the Kamisas, but also to talk in front of 50 people. And he committed to, to, to help any which way he could. And that was six years ago, and as you see, we're still together, working together. You know, out of the ashes of that uh, tragic, tragic story, can anything, could anything good like a phoenix rise up? I want you to listen in closing to Azim, Tariq's father, describe this national foundation that he and Plez are now partners in. As he describes that foundation. The foundation is for kids. You go into schools then? Absolutely. We start our program at fourth grade and we go all the way to middle schools. Our program is an hour, 15 minutes of interactive high impact mm. conversations about violence. Okay. It is a prevention program. Our goal is that they would choose a different path than Tony did. Almost 86% of all serious juvenile violence is committed by gang members. 86% by gang members. Gang members. So what we're trying to do is to have these kids make a separate choice. So what they do in this program is they see a very powerful video. Is this we, where Tony's speech is played? Absolutely. Okay. And we've also reenacted the murder scene. Oh, you yeah. have? So it's a powerful video. Okay. It starts there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I get up and talk about the impact this tragedy had on me and my family. Mm -hmm. And Ples gets up and speaks about the, tra about the impact this tragedy has mm -hmm. on his life and his family. Mm -hmm. And then we have a male panelist and a female panelist that were both gang members but are now doing good work. And when it's all said and done, we will do programs with 250 kids at a time. We do a Q&A. Mm. And it's amazing. In 250 kids, there are 60 hands in the air. Wow. Questions do not stop. Mm. At the end of the program, in the lower grades, all of these kids will line up and give Ples and me a hug. Is that right? And the older uh, middle schools will come and shake your hands. Wow. You know, how, how, how can it be? How, how can a dad out of such immense grief over the death of his son, out of those ashes. I, I mean, how would you be? Are you a dad? Yeah, I think of... I think of... how I would cope if it were Kirk who was dead, or, or Kristen. And yet somehow, it, it, in the moment of human crisis, there, there is an energy, there, there is an inspiration that is provided. And I don't know if you caught the numbers there, but this father has raised up the Phoenix of Hope for over 100,000 kids so far in the San Diego area. Hope that they might not be sucked into a life of violence. Children killing children. Out of the ashes of his son's death, 
You know, you think about it, folks, that is it, that is precisely the story of God himself. And I'd like to end with this picture of the cross. Put it on the screen. Don't look at me. Take a look at that uh, screen in front of you. You know, it's when we look at the cross. It's when we remember that Calvary remains the most singular and compelling proof of all that God is able to take the most horrific loss the most devastating failure, the most painful suffering. And out of those ashes, God is able to raise up the greatest good that is ever possible, ever imaginable. God can take the worst that there is and transform it into the best that is possible. You look into the face of Christ on that cross, out of the ashes of His own Son's death. What has God raised up. We cannot lose in the context and the conversation of human suffering. We, we dare not lose the picture of Calvary. That, that picture represents the world's darkest tragedy that God was able to transform into the universe's greatest triumph. Look into that face. That face that died for you. That face that died for me. You cannot, you cannot get more omnipotent. You cannot get more creative with human suffering than the story of Calvary. You, you can't. I know you suffer. I know we suffer. But if we will lock into our minds God's creative omnipotence, God's omnipotent creativity, that is what can transform our tragedies into His triumphs. You know, I have a hard time even looking up right now. Because when I look up, I look up into somebody's face. I look up into a face that suffers. It's no wonder verse 32 follows verse 28 here. Let's go back one last time to Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. And are called according to His purpose for them. Now go, now go to 31. What can we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Verse 32. Since God did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't God who gave us Christ also give us everything else? Now drop down to verse 38. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from His love. Death can't. And life can't, the angels can't, and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The creative omnipotence of divine love in the face of human suffering. Uh, I end with the story. Philip Yancey tells it in his stirring book, Reaching for the Invisible God. He's describing his own father-in-law's approach to death. His father-in-law had been a Bible teacher. We got a, we got a host of Bible teachers in this audience this morning. He'd been a, a lifelong Bible teacher, but he found that his faith was troubled in his final years. A degenerative nerve disease confined him to bed, as Yancey puts it, impeding from him most of the activities that gave him pleasure. No more. He can't do it. In the midst of his suffering, his 39-year-old daughter battled a, for, a severe form of diabetes. 
Financial pressures are mounting. They come during the most severe crisis. They come to Christmas, even as we approach it. That Christmas, he composed a Christmas letter that was mailed only to others in the family. Many things that he had once taught out of his strong Calvinist roots, he now feels uneasy about. What can he believe now with certainty? He came up with three of them. Three certainties, and he penned them into his Christmas letter that year. Here are the three. One, life is difficult. Two, God is merciful. Three, heaven is sure. These three, he believed, he could count on to the very end. And when his daughter died of diabetic complications, the very next week after he wrote that letter, he fiercely clung to these three. What are the three again? One, life is difficult. Two, God is merciful. Three, heaven is sure. And because it is so, my friends, there is nothing you and I shall yet suffer that divine love shall not yet conquer. For we know that God can work everything together for our good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. The creative omnipotence of divine love in the face of human suffering. Let us pray. Oh God, a bunch of words on a page, a few thoughts strung together. But here we are as family in this Advent season. And here are they in our midst right now for whom suffering has not become a theoretical, homiletical conversation, but a very real reality in their journey. And, oh, Father, it has to be your spirit at a moment like this. There are not the words we speak. But dear God, surely there can be the undergirding of a truth that comes from your heart. That you work. You really do work for our good in all things. And so for those for whom this truth must shine the brightest, please, let your grace be sufficient. The arms that went around Joseph and Job and Paul, let them sense those arms. As you put it, underneath are the everlasting arms. And dear Father, this much is certain. Every person bowed in this place shall one day yet suffer. And when our summons comes, may the truth of who you are bring us through too 
until you write that last chapter. What wondrous love, what wondrous love is this that you have led the way through Calvary. Today, we thank you. Amen.